When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, went on a bit of a rant there at the end. Welcome back to the front three. Your front three this week is me, Adam Boltwood. We've also got Chris Hennich. Hello there. And Nico Morales as well. How are you doing? Lawrence, a little bit preoccupied, of course. What with having a baby, an actual person he's made. So he's not with us tonight, but huge congratulations to him. Yeah, it's crazy that it's not his, but it's real nice of him to take care of <laughs> No, we don't talk about that. Um, I actually had a funny one last week where... Uh, a friend of mine texted me, shout out to Jay. Uh, he sort of got confused by me uh, suggesting that Lawrence calls his child Adam Jr. Uh, seemed to assume that I was having a baby and was choosing to announce it on the podcast uh, before I told him or our friends or my parents, which I guess is is one way to announce it. Lawrence <laughs> has had his baby, so a huge congratulations to him. The two substitutes on Twitter asking, when is baby Loz joining the front three? Um, I think... We all need to have kids, I guess. And then we can start the back five, as Baxtom98 suggested to us on Twitter, which is a ways off, we'll say. Um, for now, they just stuck with the front three. Tonight, we're talking Tottenham and how they're shaping up after their first two games of the restarted season. We're talking Arsenal and some of their questionable announcements yesterday. And finally, we'll be talking the reaction to the White Lives Matter banner, which flew over Manchester City v Burnley on Monday night. But before all that, Nico, we haven't spoken since the Premier League came back. What do you make of the new normal? It's all a bit flat, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen a ton of it just because I think it's, I don't know, every time I log on to see any of this stuff or participate in the online discourse, it just seems relatively inconsequential um, given the current moment. But um, aside from that, I think, yeah, it's it was natural, you know, we've talked about it before specifically and i think just referenced it all the time like it's going to take a while for any player to return to any kind of match sharpness or match fitness and all that stuff and i think one thing that struck me i think particularly during the liverpool versus everton game is that you know as much as the fans being part of the experience and being contributing to the aspect of football is like a lofty idea that I think marketing agencies try to sell to people as like a positive thing. Um, it is something that truly exists, you know, and, and it is something that, that does affect the uh, the play on the field to a certain extent. So I think that's part of it um, without trying to sort of talk about or 
raise up any platitudes. It, it is a significant part of the experience and, and that affects the players. Yeah, it, it just feels very soulless about the fans, doesn't it, Chris? Yes, I see why you say that because the crowd noise being pumped in, I don't think has felt organic yet. It still felt very artificial. Um, and the games themselves have been a bit low on quality. There's been a lot of rust, which is understandable. They've been out of action for three months and then forced to come back really quickly. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think what we just have to accept that this is the consequence of them needing to play these games. There's no other way to spin it, I think. They've got to play these games for financial reasons. And, and in an odd way, the sooner we get through with them, the better, just so the season can be finished. And then, yeah, it, I, I know that sounds weird. And maybe I'm speaking from the vantage point of my team are a little bit further up the league table. And so we're not actively looking at relegation and concerned about the implications of, of that. But trying to speak from a slightly more general point, we know the league title is going where it, it has been for some time now, which is Liverpool. I don't think actually there's a huge clutch of teams involved in that relegation battle, I'd say the bottom five. So everything in between that is meh, really for want of a better word for it. There's, there's, there's not really much attached to it or to be decided by it. It's, it's about those teams getting in and trying to work out, okay, what does next season look for, like for us? How much money are we going to lose on a match day and things like that? So there are, I think, bigger concerns for a lot of teams outside of those in the relegation spots. Yeah, it does feel like we're going through the motions somewhat, but it is interesting to get a look at certain teams and how they may shape up for next season. Speaking of which... Tottenham Hotspur they beat West Ham last night 2-0 following a 1-0 draw with Manchester United on Friday and it was a good win I enjoyed it don't get me wrong but despite remaining undefeated since the restart the performances haven't been particularly inspiring with a few question marks raised firstly Harry Kane he got a well-deserved goal tonight after a tireless performance he's clearly working his way back to fitness and, and back to sharpness as many players are that was his 137th goal in 200 Premier League games with Spurs, which I'm sure delighted Jose Mourinho, Chris, given Paul Merson's comments about how Kane won't score as many goals under Mourinho at the club. Uh, Jose, fully vindicated here tonight, Chris, right? Yeah, I saw the, the rant that he went on with that. It, it, given the whole facts rant of years gone by, it's an odd, uh, an odd world. I mean, 2020 is an odd world where Mourinho is the one dusting down the paper and saying, I had this many goals with this player, this many goals with this player. I, I'm not too sure what point he was trying to make personally. It just looked like one of um, someone that was clearly quite riled. Yeah, I, th I think the, the bigger, <laughs> for me, the bigger question with Kane and Tottenham is quite simply, what is your plan with him? Are you going to stick with him and essentially just bet the farm on him maintaining what he's at and, and keep scoring goals? Or are you going to potentially look to, to cash in on him and see if that money can fund a raft of transfers to essentially overhaul this squad? Because I, you can correct me on this, and I would almost ask you, Spurs' financial situation, as I understand it, is not fantastic because of the stadium and then COVID, which is the precursor to everything. So is there a necessity to sell Kane or is that... I, I don't think there's a necessity when it comes to Kane. 
Um, the financial situation is very difficult. The club have borrowed £170 million from the government to ease some of the financial pressure as a result of coronavirus. They've said none of that money will be spent on transfers, which is good. I'm glad they've made that clear, given the whole furlough mess they got themselves in a few months ago. So it is going to be a situation of selling before they can buy. Uh, I don't think Kane will be one of those sold, though. There's no real pressure to sell him in that he's got four years left on his contract. I think it would take a crazy offer north of 100 million, if not 150 million, for Daniel Levy to even consider it. I don't see that being realistic in the current climate, given Liverpool balked at 50 million for a talent like Werner. Manchester United are one of the few clubs who could stump up that kind of cash, maybe, but they're clearly focused on Jaden Sancho and Jack Grealish. If you look at Europe, are PSG or Real Madrid even going to be able to spend that amount of money? I don't think so. So I find it very unlikely that he'll leave this summer. But, I mean, it does make you think about the long-term future of Harry Kane. Nico, he's made no secret. If not of his desire to leave Spurs, then, then certainly his openness to it. Um, he's 27 this summer, he's spoken about how he wants to win trophies, how he wants to win silverware, and especially now, post-Pochettino, Spurs really the club to do that. Yeah, I think he, I don't think, you know, this is my opinion, but I don't think Spurs are headed in a particularly fruitful direction under Mourinho. I'd be surprised if he's there for any longer than another season. Um, just given the, not even, you know, obviously they won last night, um, but I think this is something that you and I were discussing sort of pre-podcast. Like they Spurs as a club were going in a very unique and interesting direction under Mauricio Pochettino. It was a very long-winded project because of the financial restrictions that they have as a relatively small club in comparison to some of the other financial giants that occupy the, you know, the top three or top four of the Premier League. Um and tactically, I think it made sense because he was molding that team within, again, within the guidelines of his financial means um, to be a team that could possess the ball and, and have some uh, adequate possession with the players that they did, which is something that any team that wants to win the league, which is ostensibly what Spurs want to do, um, needs to do. Uh, and then, you know, when that went down the toilet, they went in the opposite direction and you know, there's always this ongoing conversation about where Mourinho is and what kind of manager he is now and whether his tactics are a little bit outdated. Um, and there's evidence to either argument, but I think if Kane wants to be successful in his career, and as you mentioned, his age, and he's no spring chicken in terms of injuries, um, he should he should probably look elsewhere because I don't think success is guaranteed under Mourinho. And then who knows where that leaves Spurs as a club? You know, it's entirely as up to who they hire. And given the fact that they followed Mourinho directly after someone like Pochettino, whose philosophical ideologies don't exactly match up, I wouldn't bet on it, you know, necessarily being a guaranteed successful future. So I, I think I think we'll see the back of Kane within a year, let's say. Mm, yeah, I worry more about next summer. I still think he is one of the best strikers in the world, despite this narrative that he's, he's finished almost, which is why it was great to see him score last night. Yes, perhaps he isn't as explosive and as deadly as he was a few years ago after a number of, of serious injuries, but he's still an elite player. Um, I think the big issue for Spurs, of course, is Jose Mourinho, though. Um, there was obvious concern when he replaced Mauricio Pochettino, followed by a short but sweet honeymoon period. Before the pandemic break, though, Spurs were a bit of a mess. Um, well, isn't there an element of, of the conversation around Kane as well? Just asking you as a, as a fan, you know, 
I think a lot of the time the perception and what actually was is that, you know, Kane was the focal point for a lot of the offensive moves and was spearheading a lot of what they did um, that was positive in, in sort of the offensive third. So I think if he moves in a different situation and there are other players around him so much so that he doesn't need to necessarily be so heavily depended upon that could, you know, cause we were talking about sort of a transition to his game as well. He's getting more involved in the play. Now there's more passing going on. There's more um, involvement in the buildup, you know, that could aid him. And is that really something that he can do at, you know, under Mourinho at Spurs or at Spurs at all, given the fact that they don't have the ability to put other players necessarily of his caliber, let's say around him. Yeah, I think with Harry Kane, you you do now see him drop deeper to influence play and and drift into positions across the front line. There were times against West Ham where Ali was actually the furthest player forward. Um, I'm not sure that's that's any sort of master plan from Jose Mourinho though, or if there's any sort of <laughs> sense of what he's trying to do tactically. Um, there just seems to be this idea of, of sticking Aurier high and wide, getting the ball to him, letting him cross it in and, and see what happens. Or increasingly <laughs> pass it to Giovanni La Celso, who is one of the few players with the the spark and the creativity. Um, pass the ball to Tengai and Dembele. Oh wait, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. This this is the most worrying thing about Mourinho. It's obviously a complete one eighty from Pochettino in terms of, of tactics and man management as well. And when you see someone like Tangi and Dombele, who is the club's record signing, who is a very exciting player, who we've only really seen flashes of this season, you know, he hasn't been able to show what he's capable of. And now there's reports coming out of France last night that the relationship between Ndombele and Mourinho has completely broken down and Ndombele doesn't want to play for him. You start to see a situation, Chris, that reflects that between Mourinho and Pogba at Manchester United. Uh, another fantastically talented midfielder who couldn't or wouldn't give Mourinho what he wanted. And you worry about Spurs making the decision to side with Mourinho, when I think most fans would want to side and invest in a young player like Endombele. That's where the future is. That's what you want to build around long term. Manchester United obviously made the decision they made, but with Spurs and their financial situation, you know, I don't think they'll sell someone like Kane. But I do think they need to sell someone and you could see them making the mistake of selling Ndombele, which I think would be really sad. You know, this is a player who was coveted by the best teams in Europe, who Spurs managed to, to steal a march on and, and bring to North London. And now it looks like he could be sold a year later without being given a chance at the behest of a manager who probably isn't and shouldn't be at Spurs in, in the long term, Chris. Yes, next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... But seriously, though, it's painfully similar to the Pogba situation in the sense that there are people who will say, oh, let's get rid of Ndombele and keep Mourinho. And you think, well, why? Because, I mean, there's a financial issue, first and foremost, which is you paid less for Mourinho in theory than you did for Ndombele. Ndombele also has more resale value. So I get that you could think, oh, well, I could lessen the loss by just selling Ndombele, whereas I can't sell Mourinho to anybody. But like this is, I hate to say, it, but this is kind of his thing now. Is that he falls out with these players? I think he's got a bit of an older school mentality, Mourinho, where when it comes to like injuries or you know f- maybe fatigue or whatever, he expects players to push through that. And I just don't think that's how we do it anymore. I really don't. And I'm first and foremost very glad of that because I think it's a dangerous way to operate. But I think when someone like Andomla says, "No, look, I'm injured," or you know, "I'm not fit," or what. 
he sees that as, oh, you, you aren't part of, you know, you aren't on the inside with us. You're on the outside of the tent doing the Afro, you know, aforementioned thing. Um, and I just think it, it, it's crazy to me that people would want to entertain the idea of getting rid of Ndombele when, to be honest, I don't think Mourinho has really shown anything to indicate that there is a bright future under him. That's, that's the problem. If they had been playing really well and you say, well, wouldn't it be great if he could incorporate Ndombele? Yeah, that I could get. But I watched them tonight against West Ham. And yeah, okay, there's a degree of rust. We can acknowledge that too. <laughs> but I felt like it, to me, represented a lot of Spurs games I've seen where they come up against a low block. Thank you for teaching me that phrase, Nico. And they really <laughs> struggle. And they shuffle it around like a basketball team from one side to the other. And Deli Ali looks like he's on an island doing nothing. And it's it's just, it's very frustrating to watch. And I have tremendous respect for what Mourinho has achieved in the game and, and the titles he has won. That does not give him carte blanche to torch everything in a club like that and still get rope to to kind of play with. I, th- I think it would be a really bad idea to, to sell Ndombele and put everything on Mourinho because I just don't think that's going to get better anytime soon. I think there's an element of it too also that I think Chris touched on with Nimbele and like the, the willingness to be and this old school mentality of the team over the self. And that's something that any team needs to function regardless of how you're playing. But also like when you look at someone like a Nimbele, ostensibly someone who's excellent on the ball and a player that can justify a move to a Barcelona, a Manchester City, a Bayern Munich, whatever the case may be, teams that maintain the majority of the ball, they don't want to be spending significant portions of the game, or dare I say even half of it, you know, 50-50, chasing around opponents and sitting in a defensive block and not having the ball and being frustrated because they're talented players. And so I think that's that's where I've seen, you know, I'm good friends with Nathan Clark, who there's been like, you know, the classic football Twitter video analysis of like, is Ndombele lazy or is he adhering to a defensive tactical scheme or is he pressing correctly? And all these questions, as they did with Pogba and as they have done with a million other Mourinho players, always come up. And it's can talented on ball players, do they want to work with Mourinho? Do they want to sit in his increasingly ineffective defensive schemes. And I think what we're finding out is consistently, no, they don't. It's not fun to play under him. And it's not successful anymore either. I agree. And I think Mourinho should have a huge responsibility to make Ndombele work at Spurs. I just fear, as I said, the club needs to sell before they can buy. And I can see them stupidly, I might add, seeing Ndombele as an unwanted player, representing the most value in the market. Um, I mean, there's also talk that, that Eric Dyer could be sold with his contract situation up in the air. Now, that one I wouldn't be so against. I'll be very honest. <laughs> I, I actually really like Eric Dyer. I've been encouraged by what I've seen of him in these first two games. Some might say he's an accident waiting <laughs> to happen. Who um, might say that? <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we saw that with the penalty he gave away against Pogba and Manchester United. But um, ugh, to me, he looks strong. He looks fit. He looks like he's one of the better players. Uh, since the restart for Spurs and is one of the positives for me and he's clearly being given a chance at centre-back by Mourinho which is which is where he belongs so I hope he signs a new contract I hope he stays but Spurs Spurs do really need a, a specialist defensive midfielder they need a new left back they need a new right back and they may be tempted to sell someone like Dyer to fund that although I'd rather see someone like Lucas Moura or Serge Aurier even moved on um, but 
the thing with Spurs, there is some cause for optimism when you look at the teams around them, uh, mainly Arsenal, who, who we'll come on to. <laughs> but despite Chelsea strengthening, I don't think they're miles away from competing properly for the top four next season if they strengthen in those positions I mentioned. It's just Mourinho. And I know there's there's mitigating factors and you shouldn't judge him after half a season and he, he needs more time. You know, he came in after five years of Pochettino. The players, as were, were was widely reported at the time, were exhausted mentally and physically. And I'm sure many were questioning their futures after what felt like an end, an end of a cycle. We also had an awful injury record just before the restart, which obviously contributed to our form nosediving. But it's still very hard to see what Mourinho is trying to do on the pitch. Uh, the football is incredibly uninspiring. And it's it's hard to have that optimism about the future. Um, I know we've just been in West Ham. That's great. Uh, but West Ham are awful. And <laughs> what's more concerning is the evidence is there in terms of patterns repeating themselves with Mourinho. You know, the poor performances, alienating players, defending himself against failings by constantly referencing past achievements. I think it's obvious where this is going to go. Um, but look, we'll see, we'll see how the season finishes up. Uh, the top four is gone. It remains to be seen if Spurs qualify for the Europa League. I'm sure there's big financial implications if they don't, which will determine a lot for next season. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Arsenal now. We spoke about them last week, um, but I mean, as with Spurs, it's fascinating to, to use the restart to see how they're going to shape up for the next campaign. Not so much to get excited about, uh, apart from Arsenal Fan TV, of course, which has given us some some hugely entertaining watch-alongs. I mean, and truly something to behold. But it's very clear now, it's very stark, the size of the job Mikel Arteta has on his hands. Myself and Lawrence were talking about this last week, how there's a lot of contract situations up in the air, there's a lot of deadwood to get rid of in order to revitalise that squad and, and to build and evolve going forward into the future under Arteta. But now, Chris, uh, they've just announced they've given David Luiz a new one-year deal after what I assumed was a performance so bad we'd never see him play for the club again. I mean, great news for, for rival fans, Chris, not so much for Arsenal fans. Um, you know what, I'll be honest, I don't always enjoy Arsenal fan TV, but at the weekend, it was... <laughs> when I do. It was just a surreal cup of madness. Um, and yet, at the same time, I can't entirely blame some of their responses because 
the David Luiz contract is a pretty good example of, of where they just don't seem to get it for want of a more complicated phrase or a more all-encompassing phrase. The, what concerns me, I think, with them is the relationship they appear to have with Kia Jurabshin, who is the agent of David Luiz, who is the agent of Cedric Suarez, who's just, according to reports, about to sign a four-year contract. Now, those deals may open <clears throat> Arsenal up to signing Coutinho on loan, possibly, who is, I believe, another client of, of Mr. Jurabshin. The problem you've got there is... Arsenal is a very polarizing football club in the sense that for every deal they make like Martinelli um, that seems very well thought out, quite shrewd, one with potential, they'll do one like David Luiz. And you end up thinking, at what benefit? You know, as a two-year option, fine, I get it. You take a bit of a risk. It's still £24 million total cost, according to Athletic, which is frighteningly high but we'll just say okay you do that to then extend it by another year that to me is the continuation of a problem that we saw under Arsene Wenger actually in the latter part of his time there which was not knowing when to pull the trigger on things and just move people on it's 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 nice that you see this optimism and this potential in people and and see a value in them but you can't just keep persisting with it in the hope that they change because he's not going to change. He is at this point, David Luiz is what he is, which is an okay ball player who works kind of well in a central three and nothing else. And even then, he doesn't excel in that that much. He he won a Premier League title with that with that formation. Give it to him, Chris. Give it to see, him. This is why I can 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 empathize with or sympathize with Arsenal fans because he won a Premier League title in that system. But to be brutally honest, even then, he was not seen as the second coming of Beckenbauer in that Conte side. It was again very simple stuff. It was just defend, don't do anything stupid, pass the ball sideways to to the guys next to you, and they'll start stuff. His time at Benfica, you can't. I don't think you can really analyze that with a great deal because it's Benfica in Portugal. So really there's not a huge scope for a title winner outside of Benfica sporting and Portal. And it's just, it's crazy to me that, I mean, to be fair that so much time has passed from then anyway, that I think it would be irrelevant, but the fact that they've given him a year deal, I just don't understand why I know that COVID is going to mess with things and all this, but it, it just seems like such a pointless deal on so many levels. Is there any logic to it here, Deco? Um, could you play devil's advocate for us? Because um, what surprised me was that, you know, this was Mikel Arteta who was reportedly pushing for this. He wanted David Luiz at the club for another year, but it's it's hard to understand the logic there. Is it just the experience that, that is so crucial for Arteta? I think I, I agree with most of what Chris said there, aside from the ball playing aspect of David Luiz. I think he's gifted in that sense and like you can see that very clearly in the Conte system like he he knows the form the structure of a team that plays with the ball like 
the reason he excelled, I think, as Chris Apley pointed out in that Conte team is because because he wasn't given much defensive responsibility. It was that three central defenders or three centralized defenders in the middle and the two wide players. And of those three central defenders, he wasn't of the typical sort of two center back positions. He was just allowed to sort of tackle freely and be sort of a defensive maniac. And then when they needed to progress the ball rapidly, he has that ability. So Conte did what any good coach does and minimize the chance for a player like that to be embarrassed, which he now is, and maximize the ability for him to shine, which is, like I said, what any good coach does. At Arsenal, I can understand why Mikel Arteta, as an apostle of Pep Guardiola, might want a player like that. But equally, addressing the question of does this transfer strategy or does this amalgamation of players make sense, it, it doesn't ever seem to. And I think Manchester City is actually a really good example of like, they have a great example, just like most clubs do, of bad transfer management. They had a season, they had a summer, the first summer that Pep Guardiola was at the club, where they had to let go of four or five players because they mismanaged their ages all at the wrong time. You know, they they massively aged out a significant portion of the team. And with Arsenal, it seems like it's almost the opposite. They don't have a concentration of players that need to head out. They just always seem to have two or three that need to head out because of their contract or because of a lack of ability or they don't fit the team or because of their age. And it's just, I don't, it doesn't seem like there's any concentration of a transfer strategy. It's just always sort of building the plane as it's in the sky. And that doesn't really work for a team. You have to sort of concentrate periods of, okay, this is when we I, we think we're going to succeed. We're going to build it up to this point, And then you have to rebuild. That's how any good organization works. But Arsenal is just like, ah, oh, we'll add a piece here, we'll add a piece there. And then it ends up being shit. So. Nice uh, Brendan Rodgers <laughs> quote there, Nico. I respect that. Um, <laughs> but yes, it's hard to disagree with that, Chris. I mean, you might say Arsenal at least have got some some promising young players they've brought in like... Pepe, Tierney, Saliba, uh, Martinelli. I'm still a bit skeptical of Pepe. I've got to be brutally honest. Well, Pepe's a, Pepe's a good example of that too because it's like they have Lacazette, Aubameyang, and Pepe who ostensibly can all sort of be central, but they're shoved out wide and they have to play together. And Aubameyang and uh, Lacazette can work together, but only when it's the right midfield. And it's like, what's going on here? Like, what's the plan? How do they all fit in the same team? Do you rotate? What's I don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to understand strategy, isn't it? Because as well as Luis, uh, we saw Cedric Suarez. Um, as you mentioned, he's been given a, a new four-year deal. He's on loan from Southampton. He hasn't played a game yet. He's 28 years old. Uh, so again, hard to understand the logic, um, especially when there's these futures of the more established, higher wage players, shall we say, up in the air as well. Obama Yang looks like he could leave. Lacazette struggling to 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 make the starting eleven. Uh, the whole Meza Özil mess as well. There's there's so many question marks there, Chris. Yeah, I, th- I think Nico touched on a really good point there. Is that you almost can't make any decision in isolation. You have to say, well, if we're going to sell Obama Yang, what is the benefit? The benefit is you get, I don't know, in this current climate, maybe forty, forty-five million. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of trying to adjust figures based on, on what's going on with the, the football economy at the minute. Um, in which case, like, how do you then spend that? What do you consider the most? Is it defenders? It, it's, it sounds silly, but you almost have to sit down with like a spreadsheet and do like the squad depth things that I've seen um, your friend Nathan do and just be like, where's the weaknesses? Like where, 
you know, what's the depth? Like, what what young players like Joe Willock and Smith Rowe? Is Smith Rowe coming in now? Is he going back on loan? You have to plan. I would go as far as say the next eighteen months to two years for this football club. Um, and I think when it comes to to Ozil, if if football manager has taught me anything, it's that you're going to have to swallow a good portion of his wages to move him on. Um, and and that. That again is an instance where you look at the club and go, "Well, why did you do that?" I, I don't. Jeez. Arsenal were, Arsenal felt like a very well-run football club under Wenger, towards the late nineties, early two thousands. In terms of when they first started, they bought Pires and Wiltodik. They um, took advantage of the fact that the European market in England wasn't as well known. When teams caught up with that, Wenger pivoted and decided to take advantage of the fact that. Young players, those like teenagers, Cesc Fabregas, Gael Clichy, were not as well known to those English teams now. <clears throat> I don't know where that same football IQ is at Arsenal right now. That's that's the problem. I think, it, like we said, it presents itself occasionally with Martinelli and people like that. But I've got to be honest, I look at someone like Guendouzi and I think you remind me so much of Coquelin in the sense that you, you are, are all energy... But are you really going to become massively better? Are you really going to, you know, really go on and have a great career? What and, and even even the the thing he had with Morpé, I'm a bit like, yeah, that that to me is kind of what I come to understand as Arsenal a little bit in this modern era. They are a bit of a soft touch. They are easy to rile up, and I just think you're going to have to transform as much of the mentality of this club as you are really the playing staff and the problem is that a lot of that playing staff is expensive and i don't think there's a big buyer's market right now either do you have faith nico in Mikel arteta's ability to change that mentality because although he's clearly a coach who's extremely well spoken of um this is clearly a huge long-term task he's got in front of him do you have faith that a is capable of that job and b they'll actually be given the opportunity to do it given the situation at Arsenal in terms of that fan base and in terms of that lack of coherent strategy from the club themselves? I, I don't think that by me saying I don't have faith in his ability to turn it around is necessarily an indictment on who he is as a coach. Rather, I don't know how many coaches could really step into the situation at Arsenal as we spoke about with the relatively dispersed transfer situation and their strategy transfer strategy as a club um, could step in and, and really rectify that. I think Mikel Arteta has the man management ability and the tactical mouse and everything else to succeed in another situation. But as we mentioned, it's just a different situation with Arsenal because they don't really seem to understand what they're doing. Like we were having a conversation pre-pod about Cedric Suarez and like they just signed him, but there was a chance that he was going to leave Arsenal having come there and not having played a game. They're going to offer a four-year deal to a 31-year-old. They're going to, you know, I think Ganduzi's pretty good, but, you know, I have faith in his playing ability. But when it's backed by a strategy that doesn't really seem to make much sense and hasn't made sense for a while now, it's difficult to imagine any coach succeeding in that situation. I wanted to finish by talking about the incident at Manchester City Burnley on Monday night when a plane flew over the game with the banner reading White Lives Matter Burnley, which was incredibly disappointing to see. There's, of course, been 
widespread condemnation uh, and many people have spoken powerfully against that most immediately of course the the Burnley captain Ben Mee. We can we can talk about football but it's something you know I, I want to speak about first that um, the the, the aeroplane that went out before the you know uh, at the beginning of the, the game um, I'm ashamed I'm embarrassed to um, that a small number of our fans that have, have uh, decided to to put that around the stadium um, completely missed the point um, group of lads in there are are embarrassed to, you know, to see that, and it's not what what we're about at all. Um, missed the point of the whole thing that we're trying to trying to achieve, trying to do. I think these people that need to need to come into the 21st century and and educate themselves, and you know, as, as a lot of us do, and you know, like I say, completely missed the point of the whole thing that, that we're trying to achieve, and um, it does not represent what we're about, what the club's about, what the players are about, and what the majority of the fans are about for sure. Um, it's a small minority of people. And uh, yeah, I'm really upset that, that that happened. I thought that was really well said by Ben Mee. Um, I was impressed to hear that, you know, he felt compelled to say something after the game. And I think it was really important that he did. But I mean, Nico, what, what was your reaction to seeing that banner on on Monday night? You know, I think obviously it's, it's a disgusting thing um, to see that sort of thing, not because... And again, this is, we really should have recorded it, but a conversation that we were having pre-podcast. But I think there are those who would agree with the statement that all lives matter, that are nefarious in their intent and choose to uh, use that to actuate a claim that they do not want to be trounced on or, or stepped. they feel like they're being stepped over as a white person, which there's no material evidence that that's really ever happened. Um, but... There are also those, I think, that are a little bit more well-intentioned that would say, listen, I, I, I don't, I agree with the idea of the Black Lives Matter movement, but I would agree with the sentiment that all lives matter, which is almost synonymous with white lives matter um, in the sense that, and this is something that we were talking about pre-podcast is like, it's not, and this is where the, sort of the rhetorical conversation or the rhetorical general understanding of the Black Lives Matter movement has gotten to here in the States is that no one who is advocating for the Black Lives Matter movement is saying that all lives do not matter or that white lives don't matter or whatever. It's that the Black Lives Matter movement is looking to shine a light on the systemic racism and the implicit bias that exists in society towards black people and people of color as a whole, but black people specifically, not because they feel like they should get special treatment or they feel like there's any sort of, you know, specialty that comes with that, but rather because they are, and this, there is material evidence of this treated entirely unfairly when it comes to the, the, you know, treatment from police treatment from, you know, in, in, in different industries, uh, you know, a, a, any of that. And that's kind of the point here is that, like I said, I think there are those who are more well-intentioned that would say, I, I agree with the sentiment that why don't we just care about everybody's lives? But the, like I said, the point of the Black Lives Matter movement is not to say that these, somebody's life is worth more than another's. It's to say that these people that have been disenfranchised, that have experienced a, a racism that no other person will ever conceive of, um, and can, uh, you know, receive systemic abuse, uh, have not been cared for and directly addressing that and directly calling attention to it is necessary because it, 
it exists in 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 a completely lopsided way. And so when you see something like the white lives matter banner, uh, you know, going over, over a, a, a game that has taken steps to acknowledge a movement that, that is, is positive for everybody, you know, it's really disappoint. It's a really disappointing thing. And I think there are a lot of conversations that need to happen and ha- and are happening and are starting to happen. But when you see something like that, it, it just, it's difficult to stomach because there are those that would back it that, again, I think are well-intentioned, but are not really understanding the purpose of what the message is behind the Black Lives Matter movement, which is to say that we, there there's a sense of equality that's being strived for, and it's not taking it away from anybody else. It's giving it to some giving it to people who have never experienced it Hmm. and uh, i do i do want to mention that the the individual who's taken responsibility for the banner has got links to uh, burnley's hooligan firm and doesn't represent all fans Um, many burnley fans have come out as have the club and spoken strongly against it yet that viewpoint of of white lives matter of all lives matter is something that is that is real and it's something that that we can see (laughs) i mean i don't know what you think chris to me, it's not a hard concept to grasp. And Nico explained it very eloquently there. Um, there is inequality in society, and that's plainly apparent. But perhaps it does need to be explained. Perhaps there does need to be an effort there to to illustrate the point. Um, I thought Sky Sports actually released um, a great video from Mike Wedderburn, who's a, a Sky Sports news presenter, explaining why the banner was offensive saying, you know, that the Black Lives Matter is a cry for help. It's not an attack on white people. And even though I feel like it shouldn't have to be explained, I do respect Mike Wedderburn and Sky for creating that almost as a as a educational piece of content and looking to be positive and move the conversation forward in a in a productive way. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think um when we talk about Burnley as a football club and, and some of the preconceptions we have about it. One of the things I think sometimes gets overlooked is that football fandom is, you could say, I think shares some parallels with, with journalism and football writing in the sense that there are no requirements. There is no license. You can identify with whichever football club you want, um, which is not to admonish football clubs. I think what, it, if anything, it means is they have to be even more vigilant when they sense this type of behavior and these type of people infiltrating the fan base um, because nobody nobody wants that. They really don't. And and I, 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 the mental gymnastics, I think, required to understand those people's point of view is exhausting as much to say that Burnley have black footballers. Dwight McNeil is a, is a mixed-race footballer who I think is one of their star players, clearly has had a hugely positive impact on their club. But even if no black player had ever had a positive impact on Burnley, I think we have to acknowledge that this is not isolated to one football club, to a few bad apples. This is something far wider reaching. It's just not always written on a plane banner and flown across a stadium. That's the problem. Um, And I think we can really fall into a trap of naivety by thinking that, oh, well, if if we find who this this chap is who's ordered the plane and ban him and ban people that liked it, you know, we've taken a step forward. I don't really think we have. I, th- I think I was thinking about this today in terms of the NASCAR situation that has unfolded recently. 
And it's such a complicated one because I think for a lot of the people that hold these pretty abhorrent views, they almost view football as like an escape to maybe hold those views in silence in their own head. They can almost get away with it internally instead of having to focus on the fact that actually, I think as a society, we've made some positive steps towards inclusion, towards we have mountains to go and football is no different in that regard. But I just think we have to be very mindful of the fact that realistically, this is absolutely a war that is not even close to really starting, I think. Maybe war is the wrong word in this context, but this is a process for us that I think we still have many steps and miles to walk. And as Robbie Earl very delicately put it, we're only going to do it if we do it together. That's the problem. I I think also I just wanted to add to that as well. Like there is, as Chris mentioned, like, it's not about necessarily finding this person that has flown this banner or hired the plane to fly that banner. And then the people that liked it or the people that might be friends with them, whatever the case may be. But it's also, as he pointed out, indicative of the scale and the type of people that exist within any fan base. Obviously this problem is not exclusive to Burnley, but if we see something and they're not the same thing, But if we see something like the banner flown over Burnley versus Manchester City and we see something like the Lukaku penis chant or we see something like any variety of things, that not only says that, yes, there are actively, actively racist people in the, you know, dedicated fan bases of major clubs, but also there isn't there aren't many people of color within those groups around to make that person feel uncomfortable because they know someone who's a person of color who might be offended by by those statements who you know who they might feel a little awkward doing that that means that the 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 racial landscape of that specific environment is relatively you know unidimensional so that 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 is the issue there is that it's indicative not only of in of racism but a lack of diversity within these social sectors, within these cultural pockets. And like I, you, know, you were mentioning there, um, if football is always becoming an escape for someone whose views are marginalized by society, then what does that say about the population that finds an escape within this sport? That it's predominantly white and predominantly in, implicitly or actively racist. So how do we attack these issues? How do we how do we move forward and 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 look to, you know, look to kick that out as as the the organization exists? I mean, it's about increasing diversity. It's about making those people of different a whole different variety of people feel comfortable in these environments so that not only you know, we we find specific people and ban them from stadiums, but that people who are subject to holding racist views really have to examine themselves because they have a, a friend or somebody who sits next to them or somebody who exists in their community or someone that they work with that they might say, well, are my views completely ill conceived of? I think that's where the, the problem starts to be solved. Mm, I think that is what's important. It's about continuing those conversations and, and, and moving forward. We saw Robbie L also speak very powerfully about it on 
NBC Sports in America on Monday night. Yesterday, I obviously this broke. I got a phone call from our producer who said, um, do you want to come in? And I said, no. I said, it's important that this conversation goes between three white people. Because you've got to have these important conversations that are going to take this forward. Yeah. And that's so important. The other thing that gives me hope, and was it Bubba Wallace said yesterday, took off his mask and said, you won't break this smile. And part of it is like, I want to start took off mine. And it was like, you won't break our spirit. When Ben Me says the things he says, if you didn't know, if you didn't see a picture of Ben Me, you'd think he's black. He's, he, he was going through what we go through. He's seen it through the lens of a black man. That is change. That is progression. That's people standing with you in the fight. And if we can stand together in the fight, Rebecca, we've got a chance. Yeah, I mean, it was really powerful. And I, but I think also that conversation exists like anything does with a degree of nuance and it exists in the superposition and saying that that was an extremely powerful clip. I became emotional seeing it. I think anybody with a fucking brain would, you know, become emotional seeing that kind of thing. <laughs> but at the same time, equally, are we going to settle for the kind of change that is, Robbie, we're with you. And we're going to put Black Lives Matter on the on the advertisement boards for the month. And we're going to put Black Lives Matter on the back of the jerseys for the month. And then we're going to forget about it because we can feel better about ourselves. Or are we going to try to make material changes that stop that from ever occurring? You know, it's the kind of thing where I've had various conversations with my friends who have experienced racism and other people to say, like, there's this there's this common phenomena that we're experiencing now where white people are saying, gosh, I'm just outraged by seeing something like that. And it is a natural inclination to say you are outraged. You should be outraged. But equally, that's the world that someone like Robbie Earl lives in on a day-to-day -day basis. That's the world that anybody of, of, of color lives in on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's arguably offensive to say, like, I'm outraged because I can't believe that exists. That's their reality. So if you're really going to do something about it, I think it comes down more. It comes more to saying you have to do more than just say Black Lives Matter and, and post something on social media and do something, you know, temporarily. You have to have uncomfortable conversations with yourself. You have to have uncomfortable conversations with your friends. You have to have uncomfortable conversations with anybody in your life because that's how these things go unnoticed. Like you said, these these views can exist in their head or or, or in you know where where people feel comfortable. And so, in order to really kick that out, you have to you have to be uncomfortable because they've been uncomfortable and they are uncomfortable all the time. Mm. Very well said. So well said, in fact. Um, I think that's where we'll leave it. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for listening, guys. Uh, do let us know what you think is always at the front three on Twitter. Please leave your reviews and ratings on iTunes as well. Always very much appreciated. Um, for now, though, Nico, beautiful, passionate, eloquent as always. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Uh, Chris, thank you as well. Thank you very much. We'll see you guys next week. Until then, take care. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 